Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Ali Gharib, Senior Editor with The Intercept. The Little Rock Police Department has been riven by internal strife. Things have long since been tense. Like many southern cities, race plays a salient role in historical and present-day Little Rock. So when a new black police chief arrived in town and began implementing reforms, things boiled over. Today on Intercepted, we're going to tell you the story from Arkansas. About Little Rock Police Chief Keith Humphrey. And about the tremendous pressure and backlash he's getting from the city's old guard, including from inside his own department. A dozen of his own officers have sued him. Internal complaints are too numerous to count. And then there are media leaks and whisper campaigns. The allegations range from a supposed affair to harassment to retaliation. Late last year, The Intercept did a deep dive into this. The story of Humphrey, the campaign against him, the city's police union, and the decades of fraught history that informs all of it. Our investigation found that most of the allegations against the chief collapsed under scrutiny. So far... Humphrey is hanging on to his job, but his antagonists aren't giving up. The story was the culmination of a year and a half of reporting by Radley Balco, an ace journalist and author who's been on the police beat for a long time. You know, another anecdote from the Intercept story, I think, that really hammers us home is a lot of black officers told me that when white officers are forced to patrol in black parts of the city, they refer to it as the hunt. You know, it's it's such a dehumanizing term. You know, for black officers, it was like, you know, these are people, right? <laughs> these are black people. Uh, and you're basically referring to them as, as prey and, and you as their hunter. We're going to tell this story in two parts. First, Radley and I spoke about his investigation, as well as some stunning recent news. Less than two weeks after his story came out, Radley learned that Chief Humphrey, during patrol on New Year's Eve, was involved in an incident where he fired his service weapon at a civilian. He's now under investigation, which is why you won't be hearing from him today. Then you'll hear a conversation between Radley and two Little Rock sources that contributed significant information to his investigation. One is a civil rights attorney, and the other is a recently retired black police officer. They talk about what happened to Humphrey and what's happening to him now. Radley and I begin with the New Year's Eve incident. Humphrey was out on patrol on New Year's Eve, and he had called a, I guess what he calls an all-hands-on-deck for New Year's Eve. So basically every officer had to be out on patrol. And one of his kind of guiding philosophies in policing is that even, you know, high-ranking sort of top brass police officers need to spend time in patrol because patrol is kind of where you get to know a city, you get to know the people, you become part of the neighborhoods that you're policing. Uh, and he doesn't exempt himself from that. Uh, but while he was out on patrol, uh, apparently there was a, a fight uh, between two women in a uh, parking lot. Uh, there's actually a video of it. A bottle used to break the window of a car, leading to a fight outside a gas station. That's when police say the suspect, Taz Hayes, pulled out a gun and fired multiple rounds. It escalates to the point where one woman then pulls out a gun and starts shooting at the other from just a few feet away. And Humphrey apparently pulls up, uh, gets out his gun, and fires one shot at the woman who was wielding the gun. And then she, uh, I believe, was later later arrested. But, you know, it's really incredible to have a police chief shoot at someone, uh, an actual chief, while on patrol. And he's now suspended, uh, or I guess um, on administrative leave, was what they say, pending an investigation into his shooting. You know, he is being investigated by the Arkansas State Police, which is 
the result of a policy that he himself implemented for shootings involving police officers to be investigated by an outside organization. So he is actually the first person who will be subjected to his new policy. He initiated this policy of outside investigations to kind of instill public trust in the police department when when officers are, you know, when they do shoot at someone, uh, and he will be the first person subjected to that policy. So I think it's you know, in a kind of perverse way, it's actually a testament to the to the reform policies that he's trying to put in place. You know, one of the reasons it's such a good little capsule of of the story is that as your story, this uh, this this massive epic about the Little Rock Police Department and and Humphrey's arrival there and the backlash to him shows there was kind of a system of you know speaking of preferential treatment of these kind of officers and their family members sometimes and certainly their social circles and, and and in some cases like uh, legacies of people that became ensconced in these powerful and kind of plum assignments and just wanted to hang on to them and as Humphrey postulated and a few uh, policing experts backed up to you that's not conducive to good policing so can you just why don't you tell us a little bit about the background of how the police department uh, functioned up until this point, the role of the police union in sort of enforcing the old order that ended up uh, clashing with Humphrey when he came in. The police department, the Fraternal Order of Police, um, ran the department. I mean, it was it was the only it's the only recognized collective bargaining unit for the city of Little Rock, uh, and has been for a long time for for police officers. And so, black officers have long complained that the FOP primarily represents the interests of white officers that. You know, there's a clique of a few families that have had multiple members become police officers who uh, have controlled the union and have used the union to control the department. And so their people get promotions over other people. Their people get plum assignments to elite groups like major crimes, special investigations, narcotics, those kind of really sought after positions. Uh, and black officers, you know, told me that that the union would often fight when a black officer would occasionally get assigned to one of those unions or would get a promotion over white officers. The union worked hard to sort of protect this kind of clique of people uh, and families and their social circles to keep them in these sort of powerful positions. You know, anytime a white officer clashed with a black officer, um, you know, anytime, for example, a, a black officer would claim racial discrimination, you know, the union would not support them in their complaint. Uh, in fact, I asked every black officer I interviewed, which was, I mean, if they could have interviewed over 20 of them, if they could remember a single time when the union represented them in a racial discrimination claim. And the most common response I got was laughter. Um, and none of them could think of a single case. Whereas white officers, the FOP frequently represented them in reverse discrimination claims. So when a black officer would get a promotion over a white officer, uh, the FOP would, would sue on behalf of the white officer. And so there's a sense among black officers that the union just didn't represent their, hasn't represented their interest and that it works instead to protect this kind of, as you said, ensconced clique of a few families, their supporters, uh, and their social networks. And then at the same time, you know, because you have this kind of power structure that wants to keep things as they are, any black officers who have tried to raise red flags over the years about, say, racial profiling, police misconduct, police corruption, excessive use of force, the union has come down on them, you know, like a ton of bricks. Uh, they don't get representation in the union. Uh, they get, you know, there, there's one officer in particular who has had a white officer who's had multiple complaints against her by black officers for, you know, harassment, hostile work environment. There's the internal kind of racial issues where black officers have a hard time getting promotions, good training opportunities, assignments to these kind of elite units. And then there's the there are the external effects of that, which is that black officers who try to raise concerns about the department's relationship with the black community in Little Rock with discrimination, with profiling, with use of for, abuse of force, uh, those officers too are, are punished within the department. So Humphrey told you that he came into the department with the intention to win everybody over. But when he gets there, he immediately is faced with this controversy that ignites a debate about what he plans to do there and what kind of chief is, he's going to be. And it really, it, uh, it speaks to the, the power of the old guard and 
the way policing is done in Little Rock and the things that he wanted to change. So maybe maybe you can tell us about that incident. So when he comes in, he's got this incident sort of waiting for him to take action on immediately. And that is this white officer named Charles Starks uh, shot and killed a black motorist named Bradley Blackshire during a traffic stop. Little Rock has a policy that forbids police officers from shooting into moving vehicles unless the vehicle is heading straight for them or is about to strike other people. Uh, and even that policy is sort of absurd because if a, if a car is moving in a certain direction, shooting and killing the driver is not going to stop it from moving in that direction, right? But the department has a previous problem with this. There, there was an officer who had been fired uh, and actually prosecuted, although he was uh, not convicted, for killing a black teenager by shooting into a moving car. Another officer had just been recently fired for, for shooting into a moving car. Uh, and there have been a lot of other incidents where officers were not disciplined for doing so. And so this is kind of a big deal that's awaiting Humphrey as soon as he starts. And he ends up firing this officer, uh, Charles Starks. If you look at the video, the dash cam video of the incident itself, Starks, first of all, he, he starts shooting into the car while he's standing beside it um, before there's really any threat. There was a gun in the car, but it, but it was in the back seat and it wasn't visible to Starks at the time. He then positions himself in front of the car and sort of slowly kind of climbs up onto the hood as the car continues to slowly roll forward and then claimed that he had no choice but to shoot and kill the driver because the driver was was driving toward him, uh, you know, trying to strike him with the car. Yeah, the officer claimed that the driver was cutting the wheel toward him, but the video looks to me like there was no need for the officer to step in front of the car. And in fact, the video shows that if Starks was legitimately in fear of his life uh, because the car was moving toward him, it was because he placed himself in front of the car, and there's a specific policy prohibiting that as well. Um, officers are obligated to position themselves uh, you know, in a safe place. So uh, Humphrey fires Starks. So you've got this reformist black police chief who, you know, within uh, weeks of taking office after being appointed by this reformist black mayor, fires a white police officer for shooting and killing a black motorist. The FOP goes crazy. They immediately vow to, you know, help Starks get his job back, help help him sue the department in the city over this. It immediately turns a good percentage of the police department, uh, mostly white officers, against Humphrey right from the start. And what it does then from there is it becomes kind of this excuse that officers who have a beef with Humphrey can cite by claiming retaliation uh, when they're affected by the other reforms that he puts in place. So, you know, some of the kind of more banal reforms, but still important, you know, not even really controversial reforms that Humphrey puts in place are things like uh, an anti-nepotism policy, right? So you can't have, you know, an officer in the, in the same chain of command as, say, his dad, right? Uh, or you can't have a husband and wife working side by side. You can't have twin brothers working in the same unit, which all of which... Uh, have happened at LRPD. Uh, he also instituted a policy of rotating his command staff. So he immediately signs all of his assistant chiefs to oversee different bureaus, right, than the ones that they were overseeing. He takes not the assistant chiefs, but the next level down. Uh, but he rotates them as well to new departments. The idea is, you know, from Humphrey's perspective, you want new blood in these departments. You don't want these supervisory officers to be in the same overseeing the same department for 5, 10, 15 years at a time because it allows them to kind of build these little fiefdoms. It sort of breeds corruption, or at least it breeds like a sort of sense of cronyism, uh, and you get stagnation. And so the idea is to rotate your command staff to new departments. But the other thing about Humphrey, too, is that he's he's very much about sort of career development, and he's all, you know, he's constantly trying to sort of hook people up with other people in ways that will help their careers. But he's, you know, he's always about sort of creating your best self and, you know, a lot of sort of self-improvement. And, you know, I, I think he legitimately wanted to rotate his command staff because he thought it would be good for them. He thought it'd be good for their careers to get different experiences, to get exposed to other, you know, bureaus and departments within the, the, the LRPD so that they could go out and get, you know, chief's jobs with other departments. Uh, but instead, the way this gets portrayed is, that he's just transferring these officers, these high-ranking officers, because they disagreed with him about his firing of Charles Starks and that this is retaliation. 
You know, none of these officers responded to your request for comment, Radley. But if you put yourself in their heads, why would you guess that they resisted Humphrey so strongly? They immediately from the start sort of hate Humphrey or, or maybe not hate him personally, but hate what he represents. And they hate that, you know, that he and the mayor represent change and represent sort of upending the power structures in Little Rock. And so they characterize these transfers and these new, you know, anti-nepotism policies as retaliation from this sort of tyrannical chief who doesn't like that people disagreed with him about his firing of this white officer. Uh, And so that's how these reforms, and you know, I'll tell you, I interviewed a number of policing experts, experts in police management, groups like PERF, you know, other uh, police foundations that promote best policies in policing, particularly in large cities. And they all say that these, these reforms that Humphrey implemented aren't, they're not radical, right? They're not even, they shouldn't really even be controversial. I mean, the idea that you don't want a father in the same chain of command as his son, or that you don't want a married couple working side by side is pretty, you know, I mean, you don't want that in really any organization, but particularly in policing. Humphrey Firestarks, because of this issue of a, a loss of life that involved violations of LRPD policy, and then Starks fights for his job back. There's this extremely tense episodes around these two days of hearings, uh, civil service commission hearings, uh, where Starks is appealing his firing. And then uh, some of Humphrey's antagonists testify there, and they, I mean, despite many complications, they they cite their, their testifying against Humphrey's decision to fire this officer as the sort of uh, seed against which he later retaliated by, uh, you know, instituting these reforms and taking away their positions from him. And, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that the forces of the old guard, the kind of forces of reaction in Little Rock and the police department really went to went to war with Humphrey to an incredible degree at this point. The means through which they did that was was a raft of, of human resources complaints and other internal things, and then also uh, taking their fight into the courts and Chris Burke's uh, whom you mentioned before was was deeply involved in this. So, if you could just give us a little bit about kind of the uh, the history of the way litigation has shaped the Little Rock Police Department and uh, what people from the days of yore in Little Rock told you about that, and then also um, the incredible degree to which these lawsuits started to fly at Humphrey. There's kind of a, a three-front war on Humphrey, right? Um, the first is through the Human Resources Department and EEOC complaints, allegations of you know retaliation. Then there are these lawsuits, all, all but one of which are filed by Chris Burks um, on behalf of various officers from the department, including a good percentage of Humphrey's command staff when he starts. There's also a war kind of in the press, and and one of the things that uh, you know I found particularly. Uh, I guess probably not surprising, but um, disturbing is the degree to which the local media in Little Rock just sort of ate up whatever tips the FOP kind of fed them uh, and ran with, you know, really any accusation at all with, you know, very little skepticism. There's a good explanation. There's a good reason for that, which is that if you're in the FOP, if you are an assistant chief who's been in the LRPD all your life, you probably have connections in local media, right? You have sources that you can reach out to. And for local media, these are, you know, they've developed these sources. Uh, if you're on the police beat for the local TV station uh, or local paper in a city the size of Little Rock, being skeptical of what those sources tell you makes it a little more difficult for you to do, to do your job, right? Well, Humphrey comes in and he kind of, you know, tips over the apple cart and he's trying to implement all these reforms. And he, he doesn't have those same sources, you know, in local media that these that his opponents have built up over the years. And so it's very easy for them to to plant stories about Humphrey uh, with local journalists and for for, you know, for those journalists to then run with it without a whole lot of skepticism. And so you see a lot of accusations against Humphrey, including really petty things like there was one accusation that he had, you know, turned on his lights to run a stoplight in Little Rock. And, you know, that this, of course, was illegal and an abuse of his position. And a uh, local TV station ran with the story and Humphrey had to basically use GPS data from his car to prove that he was on the other side of the city at the time of this alleged, you know, infraction. Uh, and they never ran a correction. But what we see then is is just this kind of full court press against Humphrey. And, you know, part of the problem too is that in Little Rock, the 
police union, they collectively bargain on behalf of everybody in the department who's a, whose rank is sergeant or lower. But anybody in the department, excluding the chief, but anybody, including the assistant chiefs, can pay union dues. And in exchange for that, they will get representation if they ever face any sort of discipline uh, you know, from the department or from the chief. And so when a guy like Humphrey comes in from the outside, you know, the union is representing everybody in the department but him. So usually what happens in, in a situation like this is a, a city appoints a reform chief. Any higher ranking officer who had wanted his job sort of sees the writing on the wall and they, you know, resign and try to find a job somewhere else. But in Little Rock, because the union represents everybody up to and including the assistant chiefs, Two of the three assistant chiefs in, at the LRPD had applied for Humphrey's job. They wanted it. Uh, they didn't get it. Humphrey got it. So immediately he's got two of his three direct subordinates are already sort of pissed off because he got the job that they want. A lot of the rest of his command staff are part of the old guard. They don't want these reforms. They aren't happy that this new mayor was elected and appointed this, you know, this reformist chief. Yeah, and we should add again that none of these officers responded to your request for comment. But anyway, Radley... Uh, Humphrey's hands were tied. And because of the way the union is set up in Little Rock, there's nothing an outsider chief can really do about that. He's got a command staff that's going to be, you know, pretty militantly opposed to his new policies. And there's nothing he can do, do to change it. You know, a lot of the policing experts that I talked to said that this is just, it's untenable. You have to be able to put in a command staff that supports your policies. And if you can't, it's going to be nearly impossible for you to get anything done. And in fact, they're, they're sort of surprised that Humphrey had been able to implement the reforms he had, given that the deck was kind of stacked against him when he started. So there's all of that resistance from the start. Uh, and then we started seeing the lawsuits The lawsuits start flying. And, and Burke's files one after another, after another, after another. And they all kind of hew to this line that you know, all these officers who are filing lawsuits against Humphrey are alleging basically the same thing, which is that one of the parties to the lawsuit either testified against the firing of Charles Starks or, you know, publicly advocated against the firing or opposed the firing from behind the scenes, and that Humphrey had then taken actions to retaliate against them and their friends and family or whoever because of that. Radley, can you uh, tell me a little bit about... um? how this story fits into the bigger picture of police reform post George Floyd, whether reforms are possible, the sort of forces that are going to push back against uh, these sorts of efforts from inside police departments. Here you have a clear mandate for this new mayor. He runs on police reform. He wins. He appoints a reformist police chief. And, you know, what you have a couple years later is you've got a chief who's, who's been in constant turmoil, who's been fighting, you know, left and right for his job and who's, you know, basically had difficulty implementing even these kind of basic, non-radical, fairly mundane reforms. And, you know, what it tells us is that the resistance to reform is going to be formidable, um, that it's going to be especially formidable in cities that have strong police unions because they've negotiated their way uh, into a position that it's going to be very difficult to get them to, they're not going to back down voluntarily. Um, but also, you know, I mean, what you found in Little Rock was that it wasn't just the FOP. It was there were state legislators who got involved in the campaign against Humphrey and who sort of tried to publicly shame him. In one case, you had an HR investigator, you know, donating to the GoFundMe campaign for the officer whose firing she was investigating, right? So, you know, policing has been the institution that it is for generations in this country. You know, I was somebody who's been covering this issue for 15 years now is very encouraged by what happened in the wake of the George Floyd protests and that we've seen the most substantive reforms I think we've seen since I've been covering this issue. But again, you know, policing has been the way it is for, for generations and generations. The people who have a, a vested interest in keeping it the way it is uh, have a lot of powerful allies. And so it's going to be hard uh, to shake all of that up. We should add, again, that none of the officers that are apparently hostile to Humphrey responded to Radley's detailed and repeated requests for comment, including then-assistant chiefs Finks and Falk, who've both since left the department. Radley also recently spoke with two people who are very familiar with the Little Rock Police Department, civil rights attorney Mike Lowe and Johnny Gilbert Jr., a black lieutenant who retired in 2019 after 35 years on the force. Gilbert's father was also an officer in Little Rock. Radley asked Gilbert about his career, 
and about his dad's legacy at the LRPD. My father became a Little Rock police officer in 1967. Prior to being a police officer, he was a construction worker with his older brother. According to my dad, there was this, there was this call for police officers, firemen. It was a call for black leadership uh, to be spread throughout the public sector. And I remember him saying, he was quoting Dr. King, Dr. Martha King Jr. He said, if, you can, if you're gonna be a ditch digger, be the best ditch digger that there is. So he decided he was gonna become a Little Rock police officer based on what was going on in the world, in America, in Arkansas, and in Little Rock, because the number of black police officers was almost insignificant. And so he heard the call and he became a policeman based on that. He told me later on in his life that it was very, very difficult. And he said he always had to prove himself time and time and time again, that he was worthy, that he was competent enough to be a police officer. But he was judged by his race, by his color, and not by the badge and the gun that he had, or even his intelligence. So he was always struggling, fighting, resisting, and asking himself, is it really worth it? They call that the double consciousness, you know, that added burden of African-Americans who strive to succeed in various professions. Think about all the added stress and the added consternation and self-doubt and all of the other burdens that folks of that generation and certainly today still take on. I take my hat off to Lieutenant Gilbert's father. He was a trailblazer and a, and a heck of a icon, really. Thank you, Mr. Lowe. And you, you bring up Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois and the souls of Black folks when you say double consciousness. Johnny, so your, your dad eventually started the Black Police Officers Union in Little Rock and filed a, a lawsuit, a discrimination lawsuit uh, against the department in the city. Can you tell me a little bit about how both of those things came about and then how that affected your hiring eventually at the, at the department? As far as the Black Police Officers Association is concerned, he didn't believe, and these other Black police officers, and some of them are still alive, didn't feel that, that the Fraternal Order of Police would represent their interests because they were Black. And they felt as though, why can't we start our own organization and represent ourselves in, as a bargaining agent with the city of Little Rock? And so consequently, there was five police officers, Black police officers, who helped form the Black Police Officers Association that was formed in 1978. He said that they conspired, his words, to keep him from being promoted to sergeant because they didn't want to deal with a black man or a black supervisor. And in that situation came the impetus for a lawsuit against the city of Little Rock because he and several other black police officers didn't feel they were being treated fairly in terms of the promotion process. You had told me that, um, you know, you get out of the military where you where you had some policing experience in the military. Um, and then you, well, you apply for a job with the Little Rock Police Department and, and what happens? I applied for a job with the Little Rock Police Department. They told me I didn't pass the examination. And so I asked them if I didn't pass the examination, could you tell me where I faltered or what, what errors and where I was weak in? And they told me, that they couldn't show me that, that information. So I re-enlisted in the Air Force and decided to serve my country again. And while I'm on my second lesson with the, with the Air Force, I'm coming back from Germany, uh, I found out that the United States Justice Department had, had come and interviewed 
people in the Little Rock Police Department, city government, and city government had had sent had entered into a consent decree to hire African Americans and females at a rate commensurate to the population of the city of Little Rock. I was on my second enlistment from the Air Force and I had the opportunity to to go to Germany for four years on a company with my wife, without my wife, or I could leave the military early and join the Little Rock Police Department and start and start being employed there. I chose the latter. I chose to become a member of the Little Rock Police Department in uh, 1984. So Johnny, one of the when you talk about systemic racism, uh, structural racism in policing, one of the responses you often get from you know groups like police unions or or people sort of politically on the right is that well, there are, there are all these black officers in, in policing, you know, or, or this department's majority black or, you know, 30% black. You know, why would black officers participate in a system that is systemically racist, right? You're saying that those officers are racist too. And, you know, I think one of the things I tried to show with this article is that black officers themselves will agree that the system is racist. How would you respond to people who, who make that, that argument that policing can't have a systemic racism issue because it has so many black police officers in it? I will tell you, just because you have black people there is not enough. Those people of color, black people, female, aspire to be in positions of leadership. They want to be able to steer the ship. They want to be able to influence it. They want to impart fair policies. They want to use their life experiences. They want to use their formal education. They want to use critical thinking and reasoning. And that has been circumvented time and time and time again in my experience. And it's hurtful. It's hurtful. When you spend time and time and energy and you carry this stuff home inside the house with you and it impacts your family, it impacts your quality of life, it impacts your thinking. It's a kind of a an ongoing trauma that you have to endure all the time. And you say, when's enough? I didn't sign up for this. I I, I, I don't have the answer. But I, I, I realize as I have it in my rearview mirror that I was traumatized. And when you say you were traumatized, you're not talking about seeing violence, you know, getting resistance from a suspect. You're talking about trauma inflicted by your fellow police officers. I'm talking about trauma inflicted by supervisors, managers who don't see my point of view because they don't want to see it. They don't want to see the truth. I think Mike was the front one of the people who mentioned this phrase to me, but this idea being, as long as you're blue before you're black, you can be all right. But as soon as you sort of put your blackness ahead of your badge, that's when you start, you get in trouble uh, as an officer. And so you get the racism within the department, uh, but then you also, the, the, the systemic racism in the department prevents black officers from raising concerns about how the black community is treated by the department. But Micah, if you want to talk about your experience and some of the lawsuits you filed and what you found, I've been handling police-involved shooting and racial discrimination lawsuits in Little Rock for uh, over 10 years now. It's really remarkable for me to say that, but it's true. And I have personally reviewed and scrutinized thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages of files, uh, internal affairs review files, the divisional operation uh, investigation files, citizen complaints. And there are certainly trends that break through all of these different kinds of files. And one of them is that, you know, there's definitely a tier system in the Little Rock Police Department. And by that, I mean, there are tiers of particular types of officers who are on a hierarchy or placed in hierarchy. Uh, and the ones at the top have bad conduct overlooked. If, if it can't be overlooked, their discipline is minimal they get the plum positions. This is previous to Chief Humphrey's uh, reforms, but they get the plum positions. They get the plum off-duty positions. They get promotions. They get 
perks, uh, nicer department cars, things like that. And, you know, the tiers are basically white males who are connected, who are legacies at the very top. Lieutenant Gilbert, I'd like to hear sort of specifically what what you think about that in your own experience, because I know that you have raised um, concerns about some personnel decisions, about uh, how officers were disciplined after shootings, and, and I think you suffered repercussions for that. Yes, sir, I can. But this hurts. It hurts deeply. When I was assigned to the train division, that's where police applicants and candidates come through the city, through the police department, go through these backgrounds, physical fitness examinations, moral turpitude interviews. But the one that is that stands out in my mind most distinctly was this legacy, and Mike referred to legacies, of a guy by the name of Josh Hastings. He came to the police department as an applicant. Part of the criteria of a, of a police applicant was, was to submit to a polygraph examination. And when he was undergoing a polygraph examination, he mentioned the question was, where has he ever been a member of or participated in a subversive group that, un- that would undermine and, and try to overthrow the American government? And he said he had specifically, he said he had accidentally gone to a Klan meeting. The polygraph examiner stopped the tape and says, go talk to your father and come back and talk to me in a couple of days. And so I read it and I said in writing and verbally, why would we entertain the idea of hiring someone who says they'd actually gone to a Klan meeting? My document was submitted it went up a chain of command and was ignored. That individual was hired as a police officer and I was removed from the training division. That individual was hired. That was a, a call to a shooting that took place in Little Rock where supposedly there were some black males breaking in cars. The responding officer was Officer Josh Hastings. One of the suspects was there was an individual named Bobby Moore. Hastings shot him and alleged that Bobby Moore was trying to was trying to run over him. And so for me, I go back to what I said before, how sometimes police work can cause trauma. Hastings should have never been hired in the first place. If he hadn't been hired, Maybe, I don't know, maybe Bobby Moore would still be alive. I will tell you, I was not viewed in a respectful manner by my superiors. I was not. I was regarded as a problem child. Because you didn't want to hire an officer who had gone to a Klan meeting. (laughs) (laughs) All I can do is tell you the truth. That's all I can do. (laughs) Mike, one thing I found interesting is sort of the arc of who you've represented in Little Rock over the years. So, you know, you, you often represent residents of Little Rock who've been shot or abused by Little Rock police officers, but then you start representing some black officers when it comes to policies and promotions and training and, you know, alleged uh, discrimination. But now you're representing the damn chief, right? And and he's still encountering these same problems that everybody else has been encountering that you've represented. Um, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that or if that's occurred to you or sort of, you know, what does that say about just how difficult this is going to be to change or to reform, uh, particularly from the from the outside? Yeah, it's been quite a journey. It's been, it's been quite an odyssey. I'm very proud of the work that I've done in Little Rock, and I'm very proud of my clients and the cases I've handled. And I think I've hopefully I've made some kind of a difference there. Yeah, I represented Lieutenant Gilbert and three other officers in, a I think, a fairly landmark race discrimination case that settled And I learned a lot about the inequities within the department and how they are um, on equal footing with the inequities out in the field toward Little Rock citizens of color. I have never seen such naked hostility to reasonable reform in my life uh, than I have witnessed with Chief Humphrey and the very reasonable 
uh, measures that he's trying to implement, ones that have been endorsed by the residents of Little Rock uh, via the polls and via their choice um, as Frank Scott for mayor. The reforms that Humphrey has proposed are, are pretty mild. I mean, these aren't radical reforms by any stretch of the imagination. They're, they tend to be reforms that are supported by groups like PERF and the National Association of Chiefs of Police. And, and yet he still gets this kind of resistance. He gets, you know, these um, sort of baseless sexual harassment allegations. He gets, you know, uh, this very sort of classic racist trope when you want to bring a black man down. You accuse him of, you know, having inappropriate relations with white women. And he's not alone. I mean, this has happened to black police chiefs across the country. They face similar campaigns against them, similar allegations. I'll tell you, it's been disheartening to see the resistance that Chief Humphrey is is facing and some of the underhanded tactics that have been used uh, against not just him, but myself. But as I think your article really demonstrates and really showcases, because it's such a comprehensive piece you did, I really feel like, you know, it takes a long time to turn around an ocean liner. And this ocean liner has been going for a very, very long time in open seas. And it takes a long time to get that baby turned around. And, you know, when I read your article, kind of taking myself away from the the front lines and kind of reading it from afar, reading it as, as I hope and I believe your many, many readers will do, It's actually a positive story in a sense. And I say cautiously, um, it portends, I think, well for the future. You know, the, the, the kind of the villain in the story is the FOP. And this is, you know, what we've seen kind of nationally, that the FOP has been the biggest barrier to reform. There's certainly been, I think, a disconnect between black officers and the FOP, not just in Little Rock, but across the country. I, I remember seeing stories about how, the national FOP and, and FOPs across the country endorsed Trump, and a lot of black officers' unions actively resisted that um, to the point of, in some cases, withholding dues. So there does really, you know, seem to be this racial divide within law enforcement, and yet the FOP in Little Rock and elsewhere remains the kind of only recognized collective collective bargaining agent in these cities. How do we get around this? How do we get around the, the, this monstrous sort of barrier to reform that is, I guess you could say, sort of largely white police unions? What, what do we do? These contracts are annually renewed. Uh, and so there's no long-term issue here. These are just simple contracts. So when the contract period expires, uh, at least in theory, you know, you're free to draft whatever type of an agreement you'd like. Now, I know that Mayor Scott has been entertaining, uh, if not more, the idea of of getting more comprehensive representation into some of these negotiations for police contracts. And, you know, by that, I mean the LRBPOA, which is the Black Officers Union. Now, whether that's kind of window dressing or whether that puts them on equal footing with the FOP, I think is going to be the real, it's going to be the, the nuts and bolts, you know, that's going to be the, the, the thrust of anything in terms of change or not. But I think the, the way is that you've got to, you've got to first start to loosen and then remove the stranglehold quite simply that the FOP has on Little Rock and other cities across the country, uh, Hoke County, North Carolina, uh, Kansas City, in Columbus, I think recently there's an article on CNN about the lengths, the really malicious lengths to which these unions will go to thwart reform. And basically, you know, we're talking about greediness, basically. We're talking about greed. We're talking about a resistance to just sharing resources equally. Uh, No one's looking for, uh, no one's overreaching. Uh, No black officer is overreaching or black officers group is overreaching. They're just trying to get the baseline. And so what that means is that for generations and generations, some of these white officers are going to have to relinquish some of these cherry on top perks that they've been enjoying for so long. But, you know, that comes with having a healthy, fairly run, egalitarian and thus more effective police department. You know, it's a lesson we all learn in in kindergarten. You know, you share your toys and you share your sandwich, you share the resources, you don't hoard at the expense of others. And so I think that if some of those key things can be implemented, maybe you'll see some change.
you know, one of the questions that came out of the George Floyd movement is this question of, you know, defunding the police or abolition of police. And without sort of getting into that aspect of it, I just want to ask, you know, somebody who's experienced a lot of these problems with policing firsthand, somebody who has tried to reform the system from within and has faced retaliation for that, I guess my question is, is policing reformable? Can it can it be changed in a way that will actually make a difference in people's sort of day-to-day lives? Oh, man. That's a deep question, man. That's not even fair to ask me something like that. Um, in terms of police reform, some people are going to have to get hurt. Some people are going to have to leave this, leave this profession. It's not cut out for everybody. It's not cut out for people like Josh Hastings. It's not. He didn't have it. He didn't have the maturity, the emotional maturity or the psychological maturity. He don't. If we're going to elevate this thing to a profession, you can't hire a bunch of derelicts. You can't with a bunch of baggage, emotional, psychological baggage. Say no. So the stamps have to be increased. Is it going to hurt? Yes. Are we hurting? Yes. Is Little Rock Police Department hurting for, for police officers? Yes. But that trend goes across the board in law enforcement across the country. But somebody has to sacrifice themselves and be the blood on the altar. You have to be. Because I wouldn't be without that. Not just like, not just my father, but people before him suffered and sacrificed and endured hardship again and again and again. And they kept coming back. I'm not going to go away. I'm, you're going to have to deal with this black face. I'm going to contribute in my own way. I want to be a leader. I want to be a supervisor. I want to contribute. I want to tell you about my community. I'm going to tell you about my church. I want to be heard. I want to be respected. I want to be valued. Is it going to, we can't turn the ship around, but guess what? We can start turning. We can start turning. We can start turning. We can start rolling. That was Radley Balco in conversation with former Little Rock police officer Johnny Gilbert Jr. and civil rights attorney Mike Lowe. Radley Balco is a journalist and author. You can find his full investigation into the Little Rock Police Department on TheIntercept.com. It's called Big Trouble in Little Rock, and we'll link it in the show notes. Radley, thanks so much for joining us. First, thanks for having me on, and second, you know, thanks for everything The Intercept did to, to put the piece together to make it visually appealing. And I'm, I, I have to add for the heroic uh, job that you yourself did uh, editing the piece. I, I really appreciate everybody who worked hard on it. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Podcast fellow Truk Wynn helped produce this episode. Truk's fellowship is ending, so this will be their last episode with us for now. Thank you, Truk, for all the work you did at The Intercept. Jose Olivares is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. And I'm Ali Ghadi. But before you go, I want to let you know about the new season of Murderville, dropping February 1st. To get a sneak peek, check out this trailer. Houston, Texas, October 1992. An elderly woman named Edna Franklin is found stabbed to death on her living room floor. Police described the victim as frail, weighing less than 100 pounds. Her throat was slashed and she was nearly decapitated. Police quickly arrest a suspect, a family friend named Charles Raby. 22-year-old Charles Raby. Charles Douglas Raby. Has been charged with the murder of an elderly woman last week in North Houston. Homicide investigators say Raby confessed, but say he can't remember everything about the violent act. 
claiming he blacked out. No physical evidence ties him to the crime, but a jury finds him guilty and sentences him to death. One problem. That confession, the state's key piece of evidence against Charles Raby, he says it was false. Charles Raby has been on death row for 27 years. He's in a race against time to prove his innocence. From The Intercept, I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. Welcome to Murderville, Texas. The state of Texas will commit premeditated murder of an innocent man. Raby confessed to killing her. Poor innocent old woman like that who would kill her. This is a really uh, vicious attack. I didn't kill the woman. I did, I did not do it. We were given a free reign in solving a case. This could be a case study of why interrogation should be recorded. I mean, he's going to confess to murdering a 72-year-old woman with arthritis who weighed 98 pounds. Who's going to confess to that? It's not about your guilt or your innocence in Texas. It's hell to be poor and broke in Texas. When you got somebody getting ready to juice up on that gurney, why wouldn't you want to know the truth? Murderville, Texas, drops February 1st. The new season of Murderville is coming out February 1st. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com backslash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted so you can hear it every week. And definitely do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.